season four. Been in season four for a while. Where have you been? If you'd have gave me the second, I was going to say season four point episode. Four. Four, four. Four, four, four. Wendy's four, four, four. Wendy's four, four, four. <laughs> not, a, not a sponsor. <laughs> but you could be. But you could be. Just the Wendy's four, four, four. Not the whole company. Just, just the people that's yeah. four, four, four. I have a story. What's this story? is how this episode came about. I was dressed like a Dr. Seuss character at a school in the county that we live in, and uh, I was handing out books to kids on National Read Across America Day, dressed like Thing 2, with the cat in the hat. In the box of donated books, I came across this gem of a children's book. I'm holding it up like you can see it, but this gem <laughs> of a children's book called Masquerade, written by Kit Williams. And so I took it out and decided to read through it because the cover is really cool. And when I got inside, I was like, what the heck's going on with this? Because I don't understand. <laughs> so I got to looking through it, figured out that there is a hidden rabbit in every page, a hidden hair in every page. And there is. But there's also riddles. And so I was intrigued enough that I started to try and decipher the uh. riddles and kind of try to figure out what these borders are with the letters. And when I got to the end, there was absolutely no conclusion to the story whatsoever. No, and, there's not. And I was like, well, what's the deal with this? So when I got back to work, I, I stole this, by the way, from the <laughs> school. No, I asked very nicely, and they gave it to me. Uh, I was not smart enough to turn it over and actually see the back flap, which tells you all of the information that you probably need to know. But when I got back to work, I sort of delved into this a little bit and found out the story of it. Which is all kind of about a treasure hunt. So anyway, that's what sparked this episode, its topic. And I wanted to, right. to tell you that. Right. It came seemingly out of nowhere. It but did. it's pretty cool. It treasure. Did. Treasure. It did. Treasure. 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 <laughs> secrets. Everybody's got them. Secrets. Everybody's got them. I have no secrets. The NSA knows everything about me. That's true. <laughs> secrets. These people had them. Right. Have them both. Well, I mean, it's interesting. Some, are, because, some of these people are alive and some of them are not. Well, it's so super interesting had, you because, know. like, once you found this, I was like, oh, yeah, there's like a series of video games that I watched on Angry Video Game Nerd. And I was like, let me look that up. Yeah. And that spiraled to that, which I'm going to be talking about a series of games called Sword Quest. Oh. Yes. Sword Quest. And Ty's going to be talking about real life stuff. Yeah. That's real a little life. closer to home. That's yeah. a little closer to home. I mean, all this was real life stuff, but yeah, Ties is I actually closer know, to home. Closer to home. Yeah. Okay, cool. I honestly thought about doing Cicada 3301. No. Yeah. Oh, man, that'd been awesome. That would have been a rabbit hole. It would have been, been a rabbit, rabbit hole. hole. <laughs> we can do that later. That's a good one. We can. We, we can, can do, do part two to this. Part two. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because mm. I want to talk about The Secret, too. The Secret would be really cool mm -hmm, to mm -hmm, talk about. Mm -hmm. The Voynich Manuscripts. So don't look it up. Don't right. look up any of this stuff. Yeah. Don't do it. Because we want to tell you ourselves. This is our we ideas. Do. Yeah. <laughs> we copyright this idea, <laughs> even though these it. ideas have been around. Okay, never mind. Go ahead. <laughs> Don't steal it. But <sighs> let me tell you a little bit about Masquerade, because it blew my mind that I found, th I found this book at a... I know. Okay. I was... <laughs> every time that I see this, I sing that song. I'm going to insert a clip of it right here that's like, 
three seconds long <laughs> so we don't get copyright struck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh, what was that? That was a hiccup. <laughs> that was a hiccup in the middle of the lab. I thought that was a... Goose, <laughs> you should have heard it from my vantage point. <laughs> you, you get like the honk, a- you get the bonk. <laughs> Tessa, put the "We'll be back" uh, music in right now. <laughs> Take two. <laughs> oh, I'm going to tell you about Masquerade. In 1979, a writer by the name of Kit Williams was issued a challenge by Thomas Mashler, who is a legendary British editor. Mashler asked him to do something different with a picture book, something that had never been done before. And Kit Williams accepted, and he came up with Masquerade. So the story of Masquerade is about Jack Hare, and he has lost a precious jewel that he was supposed to be carrying from the moon to the sun, who are personified in this book. So he gets it from the moon. He's taking it to the sun. But when he arrives at the sun, he discovers that he has lost the jewel somewhere, and it Actually says at the end, it's left up to the reader to find where he lost it. Dear reader, if you were to read this book again, you might discover when and where the hare lost the jewel. If you do, then go and find it and keep it for yourself. But remember, the best of men is only a man at best, and a hare, as everyone knows, is only a hare. All right. So... This guy was completely cracked out when he made this. (laughs) So... Man is man, rabbit is rabbit. And I told you before, it doesn't really have a concrete ending. So like he gets to the sun and it says, Jack thought quickly and then said, great Lord son, I bring you a precious gift from a noble and gracious lady. And it would be yours if it were not the answer to this riddle. 50 is my first. Nothing is my second. A snake will make my third. Then three parts across as reckoned. Now to find my name, fit my parts together. I am all your past and you fear me in cold weather. The sunset and the day was over. The end. Good luck, is what he's saying. So, he took about this task, and he made Masquerade about Jack Hare that loses the jewel on his way to the sun. And, like I said, up to the readers to find where he's lost it. So, the reader is supposed to figure this out by unraveling these clues that are left in 15 very detailed paintings, each of which also depicts a hare somewhere in them. The prize for uncovering the location that Jack lost the jewel was an actual jewel. Williams himself handmade an 18-carat golden hair, and it was inset with ruby, mother of pearl, and moonstones. One night in August of 1979, Williams and a single witness, which was actually a TV host by the name of Bamber Gascoigne, set out and buried the hair, which was sealed in wax and then placed in a ceramic case so it couldn't be detected by metal detectors. The inscription on the case read, I am the keeper of the jewel of the masquerade, which lies waiting safe inside me for you or eternity. So as you can imagine, it was an absolute frenzy when this book came out. People got masquerade fever. It sold 60,000 copies almost immediately, which was everything that was printed. And it was Britain's best-selling book of 1979, and it even sold well abroad, especially in America, surprise, surprise, right. and Japan. Mm-hmm. And another version was created specifically for Italy. Didn't that documentary man you watched said he was like totally blown back in Japan because there was no translation. It was just like a scrap of words and the pictures. <laughs> the book was being reprinted at like an unprecedented for that time yeah. rate. 
There were even airlines that sold transatlantic masquerade tickets, which came with a free spade upon arrival in Britain. People were nuts airlines about trying to find shovels this. to people. Yeah, they did. if you bought the special they ticket. Did. Yeah. If you bought the ticket, you got a free shovel. Yeah, man. Hmm. Uh, Williams became a sort of celebrity. He did publicity tours in the U.S. He was on talk shows and did stuff all around the globe, pretty much. He had more than 200 letters arrive at his house daily from fans, either asking for help or posing their own guesses. But since they were supposed to sort of let him know if they found it, he had to open every letter that came to him in the mail. And some of them were legitimate guesses, but some of them were really weird. Some of them were unsettling because he got sent like fake rubber body parts in the mail, (laughs) as well as letters. It took three years for the code to be cracked. So do the math. 200 letters a day for three years. Yeah. The poor dude. Yeah. Right? It took th- nearly three years for the code to be cracked, and it was eventually figured out by physics teachers, Mike Barker and John Rousseau. And here's what you needed to do. I have no clue. <sighs> how I have no the clue world. how they figured this out. <laughs> the puzzler had to draw a line from the eye of each of the animals or people in the 15 paintings. So every flew, living thing. Every in- living thing, you had to draw a line from their eye through their hand or paw. And it would go to a letter in the border of each of the 15 pictures. And then there was a word that you would get from that. And so. And, and it wasn't just a word, it was an anagram that you had you to had unscramble. To and so it, eventually, when they figured it out, it spelled out Catherine's long finger overshadows earth buried yellow amulet midday points the hour in light of equinox. Look, you. Okay, but to go out even further, when you arrange that in acrostic, the first letters spell out close by Ampthill, which was Ampthill Park. Catherine's long finger overshadows earth-buried yellow amulet midday points the hour in light of equinox. Look, you. So you had to rearrange. Cryptography. Yeah, you had to <laughs> arrange all the letters to get that, and then take the acrostic from the first letters of that to figure out that it was close by Amtil. Hmm. And along the way, also, if you look in the pictures, there's so many red herrings yeah. that are just put there to throw you yeah, off. Yeah, just just put yeah. in there to throw you off. <laughs> and, and this is not in light that you got to remember. There's only two equinoxes a year. Yeah. So right. if you figured it out. And it wasn't nowhere near an equinox. Then you possibly you had to wait a year to get to to get the exact location. location. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) Williams lived nearby Ampthill Park in the town of Bedfordshire, and he had visited the park several times a week with his ex girlfriend. Where he decided when he was there to bury the hair under the shadow of Catherine of Argon's cross. Only on the spring and autumn equinox would the shadow point to the right spot. So eventually, they released a puzzle in the Sunday Times in 1981 that aided Barker and Rousseau in figuring out the puzzle. The introduction to the book said, to solve the hidden riddle, you must use your eyes. So when it said that, they realized that it had something to do with the eyes in the pictures, and that's how they figured it out. They eventually figured out the word amulet. That's what they got first from one of the pages, and that convinced them that they had done it correctly. Hmm. And then they went back and translated everything else. Yeah. So they visited the park in 1982 and dug for their treasure, but they did not have precise instruments to calculate the exact spot 
that the shadow would be, and it wasn't the equinox. So they knew that it was there, but they couldn't find it, and they returned empty-handed. Meanwhile, they are beaten to it by a man named Ken Thomas, who refused to be in the public eye after he solved the mystery. I think maybe he this this guy appeared on camera one time, and yeah. then he would not appear on camera again. He would allow himself to be filmed, but he insisted on wearing a face covering or being interviewed from behind a screen. He allowed himself to be filmed with Williams as he freed the hair from the wax case. But then later on, he, he would never appear on film. Right. And people were mad. Yeah. People were really mad because they were invested in this story. Everybody and their brother had been digging up their backyards looking for this golden hair. And they wanted to share in that triumph, but they did not get to because, I mean, besides the point in which he took it out of the yeah. wax case, it never came on film again. He wouldn't let it. So some people started to get suspicious because there was so little coverage of when it was found. They got suspicious of Ken Thomas and even of Kit Williams. They got so suspicious of Williams, they started looking for hidden anagrams in his own name and eventually, they rearranged the letters in his name to come up with I Will Mask It. In other words, they thought the entire thing was a farce, right? Wow. But even Williams had his doubts about Ken Thomas from the beginning. Eventually, he realized that Ken Thomas had not actually solved the full puzzle, but uncovered the location of the hair by other means. So eventually, it was uncovered that Ken Thomas was not actually Ken Thomas at all. It mm. was a pseudonym. And it was actually two people. It was a man by the name of Dugald Thompson and a man by the name of John Gard. Gard had been seeing Veronica Robertson, the ex-girlfriend that Williams visited the park with. Hmm. Right? Hmm. And so he used information that he got from her to find where the hair was buried. Yeah. And the way that they even found it she had said, you know, we used to visit this park a lot. Let's go look here. And so they did, and they saw the two physics teachers. It was either they saw them physically digging the hole that they were digging, or they saw the evidence of the hole, and they knew they were in the right spot. So they found it. When they received the golden hair, they used it as collateral to found a software company, Hairsoft. This is where the story gets weird. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a lot written down about Hairsoft, but it was bad. It was terrible. <laughs> it was bad. They released a spinoff computer game. Wait, 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 wait. If you all think that paying for DLCs are bad, what do you hear this shit? <laughs> they released a spinoff computer game called Hair Razor Prelude, and it was pretty much riding the coattails of Masquerade's popularity. They hid the hair again and claimed to have hidden its location in the game itself. Did they actually hide it? I don't know. I doubt it very seriously. Unfortunately, Hair Razor Prelude was widely seen as one of the worst games ever created. The reviews were bad. <laughs> really bad. All except for one single reviewer, whose name was a Mrs. Widowson. And later on, they discovered that Widowson was a sock puppet of one of the game's developers. So they wrote a review for their sock mm. puppet and said like, oh, it's amazing. It's so good. You should definitely check out this game or something like that. You know, it had a sequel called Hair Razor Finale, and it was even worse. 
After the debacle of the Hairraiser Prelude games, most of the games industry would not even touch Finale, the second one, with right. a 10-foot pole. And it was the end of Hairsoft. It spelled the doom for the company's owners. So they stole the golden hair, mm-hmm. and they kind of got their comeuppance from it, really. Right. Yeah. And I watched that documentary that you asked me to watch. Mm-hmm. Hairraiser, the worst game imaginable, I think is what the documentary Yeah, it was, was like Hairraiser, the worst game ever invented. And, or and like, like what was so bad about it was, this is the age of Commodore, Atari, mm-hmm. not PlayStation 5 or the high-end PCs and all this stuff. So basically your graphics was just the, you know, the Atari, you know they the are. 16-bit, at you know, best. at best. And so you were literally, I think the guy said on that documentary, you're literally paying like almost 20 pounds for this game. Okay. Whatever the US dollar to whatever. So this game is a monumental disaster. So they decide to release this other game for even more money. And so this is what helped contribute to, you know, everybody like, no. And that's why I threw that little DLC thing in there, because yeah. it's like what we do nowadays. We paid for DLCs, which yeah. we're paying for an incomplete game. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that's so ingrained in our heads now. Like, oh, man, can't wait for that DLC to come out. Yeah. And just... <laughs> Sorry, Tessa for the hijack. Go. No, I'm glad that you did it. I yeah, didn't. It's, uh, a lot of people believe that the game was actually designed to be unsolvable. Yeah. So that it pretty much it. was unsolvable yeah. because it was just that bad. Yeah, yeah, when it was just that bad. Like when you watch the documentary, the guy has an, an emulator. Yeah. And he said just to get the emulator was chaos. He said because you had to search for so long and yeah. then he ended up having to pay for the emulator just to be able to get the game. And like when he started playing the game, you have this screen and like four little trees. One of them's red. And literally that's the caption down at the bottom. You have four trees. One is red. That's it. Which way will you go is what the bottom of it said. That's it. And huh. it was actually never solved. Because there, there was nothing was to never solve. Solved. Yeah. And the hair was actually sold at auction later because yeah. the company was liquidated. Yeah. Yeah. And you can actually play the games using emulators, but it should be noted, this is what this article says, there's no guarantee any solution exists or that the game is anything more than a collection of meaningless text and graphics intended to part hopeful treasure hunters from their money. Right. Hairsoft went bankrupt in 1988, and the Golden Hair was sold at auction for 31,900 pounds, which was a huge sum of money at the time, and much higher than was the expected outcome of that. Williams kind of thought it may be worth three to 6000 it sold for 31,900. So 31,900 mm-hmm. pounds. Yep. At this point, Williams is aware of Thompson and Guard's foolery that they had gotten it by cheating, pretty much. He was there when they auctioned it, but he withdrew from the bidding when the price reached 6,000 pounds. And he wouldn't see the golden hair again for another 21 years. Eventually, the trail kind of went cold with where the hair went. The ownership was unclear. It was sold to an unknown buyer and sold at least once more unofficially. Hmm. So in 2009, Williams was kind of hoping to lay eyes on the golden hair at least one more time because it had brought him so much fame and also so much trouble. (laughs) 200 letters a day. He made a plea on BBC radio that he wanted to see the hair again. And the granddaughter of the current owner just happened to be listening. So she got her grandfather to allow Williams to see the hair. And in the summer of the same year, he got to see and hold his creation one more time. He had grown very kind of bitter about his artistic reputation 
because everybody just saw him as a puzzle maker. And, oh, it's the guy that made Masquerade, not as a really great artist, which if you look at the illustrations, he is is an artist. They interviewed him and he said, I could not take the razzmatazz. There was pressure on me to do all sorts of things, and I just did not want to do that. I felt that I lost touch with myself for a while. I worked on paintings, but I never put them on public show. So in 2009, it was the 30th anniversary, and he returned to public life with an exhibition of some of his 300 intervening works. Hmm. The fascination with Masquerade still lives on. They had the 40th anniversary in 2019, and people came to Amptail Park. It was like a pilgrimage almost. They did a festival. A series of events launched on the equinox, and it ran through the year to mark the anniversary and included walks and craft events at the burial spot. But that's sort of the story, the brief overlook of Masquerade. It pretty much fascinated me. And I hope that you think it's it's, super fascinating. I hope you think it's cool. And I'll post some pictures of the illustrations and you can see if you could figure out how this worked because I still, my brain cannot wrap around drawing lines through eyes and paws and unscrambling and, I have no clue how these people figured that out. Uh, all um, rabbits. Yep. Almost 43,000 right now. 31,000 pounds is almost $43,000 in America. That's a lot. That's be a good sp- episode title. Rabbits all the way down. Yep. Rabbits all the way down. Uh, to be specific, $42,882. My topic has always been an interesting one ever since, like I said, I watched one of my favorite YouTube channels, Angry Video Game Nerd. Someone actually wrote to him, he got to talking about a series of games called Sword Quest. I think it's like a four-part episode, but it was super interesting. As soon as Tessa suggested this theme for this episode, I was like, boom, I know what I'm going to talk about already. <laughs> and Sword Quest came out about the same time that Masquerade come around in the 1980s, specifically like 1982, for the Atari. Does everybody remember the Atari? I didn't, but I've played an Atari. Do you know, like I said, the classic... You know, like you literally had two directions. uh, Yeah, Yeah. joystick. Pitfall. (laughs) (laughs) Cardinal directions and a button. The best things are your sound effects. Yeah. What's weird is I can remember the sound effects. (laughs) And like you had these weird games with uh, Michael Meyer, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre game that literally looked like Leatherface had a, um, you know... No, I don't. A, protru- a protruding protrusion. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Which was supposed to be a chainsaw, but oh, it kind of okay, looked like okay. a protruding. Like a phallus. Yeah, like a phallus. Thank you. <laughs> 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 what was this tie like? It wasn't even barely 8 bit. What would you like? 4 bit. <laughs> yeah. Kind like, of uh, think Pong. Yeah, Pong. Everybody knows Pong. So. <laughs> When Sword Quest come out, it was literally a revolution-type style game. Because it come out in four parts. It was supposed to come out in four parts. Only three parts was released. Earth World, Fire World, Water World, and a planned fourth game called Air World. So you have all the major Earth, Wind, Water, Fire, blah, blah, blah. All that I can see right now is the opening sequence of Avatar The Last Airbender. Right. 
<laughs> right. So Atari had it planned from the beginning. So anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Fire Nation attacked. And then the Fire Nation. <laughs> yeah. But what was so special about these games was never thought of before is that DC jumped aboard. DC Comics jumped DC aboard. DC Comics. Yes. Jumped aboard. And was like, all right, look, listen. We'll illustrate these comic books because we think that your idea is amazing. And so Tari had this big bright idea that if you could solve the puzzle in each one of these games, then you would get a reward. And not just a 18 karat gold rabbit worth 31,000 pounds. You literally got a reward of $150,000. Hmm. Gosh. Each one of the games would have a winner and then the winners would then compete one final game to get the ultimate prize. What happened was, like I said, the comics were written by Roy Thomas and Gary Conway. They were drawn and inked by George Perez and Dick Grondo. All three box covers were illustrated in Atari's house by the house illustrator Warren Chang. Warren Chang specifically would create merchandise for fans that wanted to create merchandise. Again, what was so special about these games was with Sword Quest, along with Raiders of the Lost Ark, which came out on the Atari 2600, were some of the earliest attempts at a narrative and logic-based game. Everybody knows what that is, logic-based game. If you don't, then use your brain. Then use your uh, brain. See <laughs> what we did there? Uh, yes. And they were the first adventure games that included what was called Twitch gameplay. I had to look us up before we started talking. I don't know what that means. Twitch gameplay? Yeah, you know, the characters of an Atari game would twitch across the screen. Oh. oh. You know, the, the yeah, yeah, yeah. noise. Again, this is what made them specifically the very first action-oriented games. However, though, the last two contests, along with the grand finale contest, were never held. Because, and I'm going to go back a little further into Atari's financial problems, uh, they released a very horrible video game called uh, E.T., Mm -hmm. Uh (laughs) and et was so horrible that it literally caused a gaming crash yep atari was responsible for this and basically this was the end of atari during in 1983 did we talk about the the whole et thing on a past episode maybe possibly i kind of recall that happening i don't know may have just been something we talked about in passing i don't know at this point i have because I i think we did because like when we did that episode is when they found that cash yeah. down in Mexico. You know, they thought that that had happened somewhere. You know, supposedly there was the whole rumor about them right. burying all those copies yeah. of E.T. Like in an Mexico. Old, yeah, like in an old abandoned Atari factory or something. And then, like, yeah. someone actually went and dug them yeah, up. Yeah, somebody <laughs> actually found it. They always went and dug them up. Yeah, there was, like, thousands of E.T. Atari games that were just buried. Yep. It was that bad that Atari wanted to forget about it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, the gameplay. Let's talk a little bit about the gameplay. Each one of the Sword Quest games was themed around a classical element. Earth, fire, water, and air. And each game required the player to move through a maze of rooms, collecting objects from one and placing them in another rooms. You know, this is where mm. all these Kingdoms of Amalur are re-reckoning. Actually, that's more hack and slash than it is. <laughs> or like when your DM wants you to take the totem and put it Right, or your DM tells you, do not touch (laughs) Don't touch the axe. I'm going to touch the axe. And the two tanks are literally chomping at the bit to touch. (laughs) I wouldn't call you a tank. Oh, yeah. The shirtless one. Uh, The shirtless one, yeah. (laughs) You're probably the squishiest out of all of them. I guess, but I'm probably the bruiser. Uh, Yeah, that's true. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. We need yeah. to use one episode to talk about our D&D campaign. We should. <laughs> we'll get everybody on it. Yeah, there you go. That'd be super fun. <laughs> All right. 
So the arrangement theme of the rooms varied with each of the games. From each game, from game to game, it wasn't like that Earth World's rooms was the same as Fire World rooms. They didn't reuse yeah, anything. They didn't reuse the rooms. They were themed around, uh, like Earth World was themed around the Western Zodiac. The Fire World was centered around the Kabbalah Tree of Life. Water World was after the Chakras. And Air World was supposed to be modeled after the I Ching. I Ching. The usually translated as Book of Changes or Classic of Changes is an ancient Chinese divination text and among the oldest of the Chinese classics. Awesome. These games require traversing between these rooms, which sometimes would require the player to provide a Twitch minigame. And when the player placed an item in its correct room, they would be presented with a numerical clue that referred to page and panel within the comic that was packed with the game. So you had... So the comic came with it. The comic came with it, yes, yes. So there was no renting this game because, you know, usually people were buttholes and lost everything when you rented this game. Right. So you actually had to purchase said yeah. game. And then after they got the numerical code, the player would find a hidden word that was part of the larger Sword Quest contest. By submitting all the correct words in the correct order to Atari, they would be entered into the next phase of the project. The discovered words would form a relative phrase towards the larger contest. At least in two cases, the Earth World and Fire World, there were more clues indicated by the game than required to be submitted. So it's kind of like a red herring, like what you talked about, right. red herring. Hmm. So you had to actually choose the so right So you could word. get it wrong. So you could get it wrong. Yeah, well, the first two that you could get it wrong. Players also had to identify a second clue in the game's instruction manual for Earth World, indicating prime numbers to use only clues on prime numbered pages oh. to know which clue to send in. This is another well thought out. $150,000 is on. <laughs> the games, I'm not going to get into the plots of the games. Obviously, you can look that up. But the games follow twins named Terra and Tor, and their parents were slain by King Tyrannus. And they traveled through all these worlds to do this. Especially with Earth World, it had to be based on the Zodiac, so they had to defeat different Zodiac creatures and whatnot. It also is credited with entering this word that we use almost every single time that we play a video game. Can anyone guess? Lexicon? No, not lexicon. I was getting to that. This canonical. This, this phrase was entered into no. the lexicon of gaming because of this because of the Sword Quest Adventures. It's lexiconical. So, what is the one game, especially like with GTA and like Skyrim, that we doom especially big for this this word that we want to just fight for we want to try to find every single one of these in a game side quests no but i do like side quests comes around once every year easter eggs (laughs) 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 these sets of games was responsible for that word entering the lexicon of gaming so easter Easter eggs okay and that was part of the allure, is that friends would talk about all these little hidden Easter eggs in the game and stuff like that. And so that's why it sold huh. as many copies as it did. You want to know my first experience with Easter eggs? One of my first ones that I can remember. Do you remember going on www.homestarrunner.com? Mm-hmm. And you would watch the strong bad emails and everything had Easter eggs in it that you could click. Yep. One of my, the first Easter eggs that I remember is Ocarina of Time when you're in the courtyard talking to Zelda for the first time and you look through the windows on the uh, left hand side and there's like pictures of Mario. Yeah, and Mario, Luigi, the and all of them. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. You didn't yeah. know that? No. Yeah. That's like, also, that's you like, could yeah. shoot them with your slingshot and it would give you a red rupee. Oh. It's like the same thing too. Like, 
when you first enter the castle after Ganon takes Princess Zelda, when you're mm-hmm. young, you know, when you come to the castle, you climb up the the, I did know that. the rope of the drawbridge and, and you jump, jump yeah. off each time and you get, I think it's a purple rupee. Yeah, you get yeah. purple red. I can't remember. But Sword Quest. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Uh, each one of the contests was designed, like I said, to award a winner for each of the four games. And after all four winners were announced, they planned on bringing them to California for a final race to Atari's home headquarters to play a specially programmed version of that game to be the first to finish to see who could race to see who could get it first. The person with the fastest completion would be named the winner and be awarded a treasure produced by Franklin Mint, who was the gentleman who created all the prizes for each one of the games uh and each valued around twenty five thousand dollars at the time sword quest was released so what were the prizes all right please tell me earth world and and like the prizes weren't just like just some random object like you know like Here's this egg. Here's this Easter egg. You know, made out of gold. You finish Earthworld and they yeah, give you a rock. Yeah, you, they give you a rock. And, uh, it had something to do with the final object that you get in the game. So, like, it's it was the prize that you were striving for to at the end of the game. Huh. So, Earthworld, uh, you got the talisman of penultimate truth. And I like that word. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. I'm glad you did. It was an 18-karat gold, a solid gold disc studded with 12 diamonds in the birthstone of the 12 zodiacs. Oh, my Oh. Along with a miniature white gold sword set atop it. I want to see pictures. I'm looking them up. Fireworld, the Chalice of Light, a goblet made of platinum and gold studded with diamonds, rubies, sapphires, pearls, and green jade. Waterworld, you receive the Crown of Life, a solid gold crown decorated with diamonds, rubies, sapphires, and aquamarines. And Airworld, which was supposed to be the fourth game, was the Philosopher's Stone. A large piece of white jade and 18 karat gold box encrusted with emeralds, rubies, and diamonds. So, the four winners would have to compete for the final ultimate prize. Really thought you said the four winners for a minute. (laughs) In the final contest for the Sword of Ultimate Sorcery. With a silver blade and 18 karat gold handle covered with diamonds, emeralds, sapphires, rubies, and the value of the sword alone was $50,000. That yep. was in Nintendo Power, I think, wasn't it, Tess? I'm saving that. That's really cool. Yeah. The Earth World, there were about 5,000 entries were received, but only eight answered correctly. Contest was held in May of 1983, with Stephen Bell being the winning gentleman. Fire World, Atari received more entries, with 73 of these being correct. For practicality, Atari required 73 finalists to write a brief essay of what they liked about the game, selecting the top 50 replies to continue to the final competition. Hmm. Held in January of 1984. There's the chalice from Fire World. This was won by Michael Rideout, who was awarded the chalice. He looks like he looks like the kind of guy that would, you know, spend that kind of <laughs> time on the Atari. I, I said Atari. 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 Instead of Atari. Atari. Once the chalice was won, Atari went into their uh, financial setback. They were also in the midst of dealing with a fallout from insider trading scandal by former CEO Ray Kaser. They were looking to cut financial losses, and this is when uh, Airworld was canceled. And during this time, Atari was sold to Jack Trammell, the owner of Commodore International. Because of all this legal trouble and all this stuff, because they could not hold the ultimate final round... Bell and Rideout were both awarded an additional $15,000, oh, as well as an Atari 7800 as compensation prize 
and granted the 10 finalists of Waterworld each $2,000. And of course, the fate of the prizes has become an urban legend in the gaming community. Uh, of the five treasures, Rideout has claimed he has the, the his prize as recently as 2017. He still has the chalice in his possession, huh. stored safely in a deposit box. Hmm. Bell fell out of contact following the Sword Quest event, but according to Vendell and Rideout, Bell appeared to have had the disc. Part of the talisman melted down for its value. Melted down his talisman, which was worth about $15,000 at the time. Dang. Uh, he kept the small sword. The fate of the crown is unknown. Vendel stated that while Atari was required to hold the contest, they could have simply awarded the winner with a cash prize equivalent as opposed to the crown. And the crown was awarded to whoever did Waterworld, but Atari went bankrupt before they could do that one. Yeah. <clears throat> so, and since they were never part of any of the contests, the Philosopher's Stone and the sword have seemingly disappeared. Some claim that the uh, former CEO, Trammell, had taken these prizes for himself. The reason behind this is, is that Atari uh, staff members have seen a similar-looking object upon his wall before he was booted out. So. He totally took it. Yeah. Wouldn't you? If Probably I knew you could get away with it. Probably would. <laughs> but some people say that the crown, was, since Atari was sold to a company called Warner Communications, so it does become property of Warner Communications, and came into the possession of Franklin Mint, the gentleman who created these objects. So, which he then in turn sold in 1985. So nobody knows where they are. Nobody knows where they're at. And then there's a whole entire thing I can spell about the comic books too. But was that Nintendo Power? Was that the pictures? Did you did you confirm? I'm that? assuming I it think is. It was a but Nintendo Power. I know Nintendo Power ran a big uh, urban legend myth. I miss Nintendo Power. That was good stuff. It looks like it. It looks like something that would be a Nintendo Power yeah. back in the day. Order Sword Quest Fireworld today. Or it might have been in a Sears catalog or something. Club, club member price thirty one ninety five. Hmm. Gee. That was expensive. It was expensive. The 80s. Yeah. Of course, you are getting a DC comic, too, though, and the chance of winning a $15,000 prize. So. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, that's funny because, like, that's the prize for winning that. But do you know what the prize of winning the Nintendo Championship was? I mean, or it was like a Honda hatchback or something like that. It wasn't even it wasn't even nothing fancy. It was the- <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and you got a gold cartridge that was worth a million dollars. So now it's worth over a million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> worth way more than that. Way than that Civic would have ever yeah. been worth. <laughs> That's another podcast within itself, the Nintendo Championship. That yeah. with, that, with that cartridge, you could buy... A lot of Honda Civics. A lot of Honda Civics. Like 16 Honda Civics. <laughs> anyway, I hope you learned something. I did. Learn me a thing. Learn me a no. thing. <laughs> Learn me a yes. thing. No. <laughs> so, way back in the 1700s, before even Kentucky was even a state, a legend was already forming here. Businessman and settler Jonathan Swift came to America in search of his next business venture. Upon arriving in Virginia sometime around 1750... Swift was wandering the streets of Norfolk when he happened upon a man laying on the sidewalk at death's door. His name was Monday, which we don't really know for sure if it's if that's actually his name or not. There's some suspicion that it may be switched up a little bit just for, you know, protection of the treasure. Um That's really all we know about him, uh except that he held a closely guarded secret. Swift took it upon himself to help the man and nurse him him back to health. 
In return, Monday told him about a time that he was captured by Native Americans as a child and was forced to work in a mine, a silver mine. Jonathan Swift's silver mine is one of the most famous treasure hunts and legends of eastern Kentucky. Some people believe that it can be found near the breaks over in Pike County. Some people believe it may be around Red River Gorge. But uh, me and a couple of my friends have a strong suspicion that it may actually be right here in our little hometown of Whitesburg among the remnants of Whitesburg's predecessor, Summit City. Why do I not know anything about this? <laughs> Though there, there's a man in Lincoln County that thinks that he might have found it. I don't think that that's true, though. All he found was a couple of old minecart wheels in a little cave, and that very easily could have been just like an old pony cave or something like that. It's untelling what you would find if you went yeah. into some of the caves here, just like that. Yeah, uh, I, was like, I think what he found was just one of the old pony mines. Tons of people have looked for it, but to this day, no one's ever actually found it. Monday had told Swift that the silver was so plentiful, you didn't even need a shovel, that it just looked like it wanted you to take it. It was just, uh, you could actually reach out and grab it out of the walls of the cave. One day, Monday finally managed to escape from the natives, and he tried to make note of some of the landmarks and surroundings so that he could one day find his way back to the mine. Being a businessman and all, Swift saw an opportunity. So, throughout the 1750s, Swift would embark on some adventures to find the mines. In 1760, they finally made a breakthrough. They found the lost first landmark, the Turtle Rock. That was the first thing that uh, rock. Monday had uh, noted, a rock that looked like a turtle. This marked the first clue in a string that would eventually lead the duo to the infamous mine. Monday's story was vindicated on the day that they actually found the rock. After locating the mine... Swift and Monday, along with a host of supplementary team members, set up their own mining operation. Even though they had found the mine, they faced the challenge of removing the silver ore without natives or uh, settlers catching them mid-transport. Every year for the next eight years, Swift and his team mined the silver. Each time they set out to extract it, they had to take different routes. The end goal was to get the silver back to Chesapeake Bay, where Swift could load it into his merchant ship. After the discovery of the mine, his merchant fleet would increase at regular intervals in correlation with the silver recovered from the mine. Then, one fateful day in 1768, Swift and his group, on their way from the mine to the coast, came under attack by natives. They knew it was bound to happen, so Swift was prepared. He acted quickly and hid the treasure before the natives could actually figure out what the group of settlers carried in their wagons. A large amount of silver ore from Swift's mine was hidden near a large overhanging rock, and he marked it with stone crosshairs. Swift knew he could get back to it one day if he survived the native attack. Swift and most of the mining party lived, only to remain quiet about the native attack from anyone who asked, as they couldn't reveal their reasons for venturing in native territory. After this, this is where Swift's story gets a little dark. One night, on their way back to the coast swift woke up and murdered everyone in his camp oh everyone craziness or just to protect the secret i was of gonna the say oh, yeah. probably to protect himself yeah killed every one of them thank you boss yeah thanks boss yeah. <laughs> thanks boss and then after that he returned to england and abandoned the mine there is no reason for him to kill everybody but he did so the the treasure hunt kind of goes cold there until a historian Judge Haywood would chance upon a widow named Mrs. Renfro. 
from Bean Station, Tennessee. She was a widow of a man that was killed by natives, but an even more important development, she held the journal of none other than Jonathan Swift. Uh, So, in Jonathan's travels, he met the widow and actually had intended to marry her. He'd left the journal with her for safekeeping, and it actually told the tale of what happened after the night that he killed everyone. What? Yeah. Shortly after he turned to murdering everyone, he was stricken blind from some unknown illness. Though it could have it could have been any kind of illness, he claimed that it was some kind of divine punishment for killing everyone. So I'm sitting here thinking, I was like, that sounds awful biblical. Yeah. Yeah. So having lost his sight. He returned home to live out the rest of his days. It's believed that he actually died just a few years before Haywood would find the journal. Haywood had the journal published, and it sparked a treasure hunt that would go down as one of the great American legends. Again, I don't know how I've never heard of it. <laughs> right. Um, I have a copy of uh, his journal somewhere that uh, I can bring to you all at some point. Yeah, I want to see it. There were also a couple of men that around the time that Haywood had found the journal decided that they were going to try their hand at finding the treasure. They had a good idea of where to find it, but uh, they entered the Thousand Acre area and uh, never returned. Nobody knows what happened to them. Do you think they found it and just ran off? It's possible. <laughs> it's possible. They're probably dead So, Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, they're dead. I mean, it's just... Yeah. You don't enter this part of the country and darn native yeah. native territories and Yeah, know. it's it's very easily they could have been killed by natives. I mean, shoot, people die in Red River Gorge every year. Yeah. Just yep. from falling off one of the rock faces. Yeah. There's some interesting paperwork out there that suggests that Swift may have actually been friends with George Washington. They had a lot of lot of mutual connections. Supposedly, when George Washington had the paperwork filled out for the pallbearers at his uh, funeral, Swift is the one that notarized it. Huh. What? Yeah. There, there's tons of paperwork like that just out there that showed that Swift had different dealings with many recorded settlers of the area. So he could have been a prominent member of society. Yeah. He probably was. If he yeah. had a lot of money, Illuminati he probably was anyway. confirmed. <laughs> Early Illuminati. Um, so we actually know that Jonathan Swift was a real person, but the the minds have been lost to legend. That's fascinating. Get them yeah. other folks from Oak Island down here. We'll, we'll find <laughs> oh, they, they've actually been looking for it on Oak Island. And I'm just like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> like my but, mama uh, and my grandparents love it. Oh, they, <laughs> they've been looking for Jonathan Swift silver mines on Oak Island. <laughs> it's not there. No. That's pretty there. awesome, though. It's like I've yeah. never heard that. I've, I've really so never heard never that. Heard in it his journal, uh, this is something that I can remember from when we were actually, like, we did heavy, heavy research on all this, that it was near a stone house with a large outdoor furnace near a rock overhang, and the entrance to the mine was about the size of what they call a boar's head, uh, which is like a mid-sized barrel. Yeah, we found something like that near the remnants of an old stone house with an outside furnace and an overhanging rock uh, next to a big cliff-facing that just so happens to kind of have the shape of a turtle hole in the ground that's about the size of a barrel, but we have no way of actually, you know, 
getting into it. Getting into this right. and checking it out without, you know, killing ourselves. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> right. Well, you know, yeah. Don't do that. Also, yeah, we were that. in high school at the time. Right. <laughs> or if you right. could fly a drone into it. I doubt it. I doubt it. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. There ain't nobody will skill like it. Also, <laughs> it's been years since I've been up there. Like, I don't even know that I could even find it again. Right. Right, and how much of it has changed. Yeah. The geographic, you know, yeah. things. Considering that there's a hollow that goes right up the middle of it that has washed out numerous times that right. I know of. <laughs> right. <laughs> After the podcast is over with, I'll wear it, this is that. But not you I'm guys. I'm not going to say it on the podcast. No, right. that's probably I'm a good sorry. idea. Mostly because it's actually on people's property. We trespassed yeah. to get there. Right. <laughs> we don't want you guys to do that well, because you, we uh, care about yeah, you. As you yeah. do on any it has nothing to do with treasure. Yeah, it's nothing about the treasure. <laughs> it's uh, right. don't need everybody trespassing on somebody else's property. <laughs> you know, Tess asked me to mention this, and it's like my coddle line. You could you could go straight back to the original coddles of this area through my line. And yeah. something I'm a proud, I'm something I'm very proud of. It's kind of a family tale when someone finds out. Oh, you're a pure coddle is what the family says. You know, it's like because you're from that line. Yeah, and you're just as stubborn. So yes, yeah, you are. <laughs> and and like you know, they talk about Colonel Benjamin Coddle's goat. And oh like, yeah, and you're like, what are you talking about? You know, because I now I didn't hear about it till I was in high school. Yeah. When Richard Smith was talking about it, it's it's a legend. Colonel Benjamin Coddle was a colonel in the Confederacy. During the Civil War, and he was in this area, protecting this area, yeah, routing out the Union and whatnot. Actually, we need to do a podcast about him one day because that would we be, should. Would, that He's would pretty be, fascinating. That would be fascinating. Down towards the Letcher County, Perry County line, where Line Fork is, yeah, on this side, mm-hmm. uh, there used to be salt mines all up and down that area before mm-hmm. coal was discovered and whatnot and all that stuff. The rumor is is that he and retreat from a Union attack ordered a cannon. Also, and, let me interject right there. If you ever decide to go exploring in the Line Fork area of Litcher County, it'd be very careful because you could very easily fall into a abandoned mine, yeah. a old cave, yeah. or just a split in a rock that is actually, it opens up enough at the top for you to fall through, but once you hit the bottom of it, you're stuck. Yeah, we call them mine breaks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or you'll get shot. Or you'll get shot. Yeah, or you stumble across somebody's pot patch. And, right. Yeah. Uh, well, when I, when I said salt mines, it's important to say that they're saltpeter mines. And yeah. saltpeter was very important for the manufacture of gunpowder. So that was one of the reasons why it was important to protect this area, you know. Uh, but anyway, on the retreat, uh, he is said to have hidden, ordered hidden Confederate gold in the barrel of a cannon back in one of these mines. Mm-hmm. Like Ty mentioned, he said, you know, there's been, you know, hundreds of people that was fascinated by this rumor yeah. looking for this, mm-hmm. you know, and it's one of those family legends. Yeah. <laughs> that we don't know if it's real. That we don't know if yeah. it's real or not. Or not. Um, one thing that I was going to mention about the silver mines is that a lot of, like, geologists and everything say that there's not the elemental compounds in the ground here to be able to produce silver, but... There are many, many native stories about, you know, them finding silver and everything in this area. Yeah. One in particular is actually linked to a, you ever heard of the story of, uh, I forget what it's called, Lover, Lover's Rock or something like that down towards Cumberland Gap? Yep. Yeah, uh, remember? We- yeah, the, the, the couple that, you know, jumped off of it and killed herself. It's actually linked back to a native story 
in which poor farmer boy meets this daughter of a native chief. And he wants to marry her. And the native chief's just like, no, she's going to marry this, you know, he's a captain in the army. He's an officer in the army and everything. He's going to marry her. And uh, so he's sad. He goes off. He's sulking around, just kind of wandering around. And he finds a silver vein in a creek. So he takes this, he takes some of it and takes it back to the chief. And he's like, hey, if I can marry your daughter, I'll tell you where all the silver is. And he's like, okay, yeah. And uh, then afterwards, you know, after he's found out, he's like, no, you're not marrying my daughter. She's still going to marry the officer. And at this point, he's already told him his secret and everything. And he goes and bashes the chief's skull in with a rock. Then at this point, the daughter is like, I can't be with you because you you just killed my father. And so uh, they both end up actually going and jumping off of this rock into the creek where he found the silver vein, and uh, they both kill themselves. Wow. Yeah. The the Spanish have accounts of it when they traveled through here. Spanish writing told a story of the existence of an old native silver treasure. Could this be the same treasure mines that Swift and company searched for all those years later? It's it's untailing. Uh, yeah. You know, how many coal mines have been through here and stuff. It's untailing what, what has been We found. don't know what's in the ground. Yeah. No. Eldritch gods. I was going to say the old ones. <laughs> the old ones. <laughs> it's a, it's untailing what's been found that's just been kept secret. Speaking of which, there's a podcast that I'm just going to give a shout out because I like them. Me too. I know what you're going to say before you say it. <laughs> the old gods of Appalachia. Old gods of Appalachia. <laughs> I know what you're, you're going to say before them. you said it. Guys, you as soon to, as I said that, I was like, well, You need to tag them in this and be like, hey, man, we really love you. So can we ride your coat? We're from just yeah. across the road, <laughs> just across the mountain. Same yeah. as you was like the number one podcast of last year. Download the podcast. I enjoyed this episode tonight. I did too. This is a good one. This, this was, was good. good. Yeah. We've but been yeah, requ- we've been time. requested to do some dark stuff again. Yeah. So several times, cool people, people have actually yeah. come up to me at Food City and been like, "Will you do the dark stuff again?" I'm okay with that. I like some darkness. Want to do that next episode? We'll yeah, let's do some dark stuff next episode. Sweet. We'll do it just for you, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate each of you. I guess that we'll just bring it to the close by. With that being said, I will throw this warning out: we did not tell you to go search for no treasure. All we did not. not. <laughs> but if you find anything, we expect a cut. We do expect a cut. <laughs> Because you hear you heard it here first. We're yeah. just saying that we love our mountains and the mountains, lots of secrets, and it's <laughs> pretty much that's the way that we should close. Yeah. Yeah. These mountains are full of secrets. So love history, love your library, and love yourself.